Singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Today, my guest on the show is Raymond McCauley. Raymond McCauley is on the faculty of Singularity University, where I met him recently during my summer graduate studies program in NASA Ames, California. Hello, Raymond, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hi, Nicola. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, the pleasure is entirely mine, Raymond. So I'm afraid that I would do a great disservice if I actually introduce you, (laughs) because you do so many things. And therefore, I would ask you to introduce yourself, um, and specifically, what are you engaged in doing right now? I know you're holding a bunch of positions in a bunch of companies, so why don't you tell us about this? Sure. Uh, Yeah, kind of my dreaded question now. Somebody says, what's your background? I'm like, how long have you got? So um, (laughs) right now, I am the chief science officer for Genomera, which is a company doing crowd-sourced health resources. It's internet-based, but we have a definite biotechnology and genomic bent. Um, that's my day job. The other things that I'm doing kind of add up to about a day job and a half. I've got that position at Singularity University and being able to chair and sometimes co-chair. Sometimes we have some help at the uh, biotechnology department for Singularity U. Um, that has actually been expanding. I'm hoping we'll talk about some of that as we go. The other main bit that I'm doing now that I'm really interested in is I'm one of the co-founders for uh, really the first hacker space for biotech, BioCurious. And so that's a, a community biology laboratory here in Silicon Valley. And it's where a lot of stuff is going on, and I've got a lot of good things to talk about there. I advise several companies. Um, I won't even name them because I wouldn't want to miss one and make them feel bad, but uh, in a lot of interesting genomics and biotech spaces and a little informatics work. So fascinating uh, interest in a number of companies and institutions, but um, let me see if I can dig a little deeper into your background with a, with a question of how you got interested to be uh, involved in, in uh, synthetic biology and, and more specifically, how did you get to be interested in biology and technology? Which one was first and how did the whole story unfold? Sure, and um, such a great question because you scratch a lot of people's backgrounds now, especially in biotech, and a lot of folks started out from really different fields, and I'm, I'm not an exception there. So the first 10 years of my professional life, I was doing computer science and electrical engineering. Those were my first two degrees, and that was my professional focus. Um, did a lot of work for government agencies, for NASA, federal government, state governments, uh, academic institutions, and then, like I say, about 10 years in, to some extent got disgusted and switched tracks, went back to school, did some biotech, uh, specifically in biophysics and then in biochemistry and then in bioinformatics. And uh, that was my big graduate focus at that point. But really kind of pulling the covers back and saying where a lot of that started, I think like a lot of people sort of in my generation, I, uh, I was a teenager and got a personal computer. And that, that hello world moment, being able to take this marvelous machine, tell it what to do, 
was really eye-opening and, and, and being able to, to play with that. And that led to, you know, at I think age 12, some of my first all-nighters where I would just stay up all night trying to figure out what to do with the machine. Uh, one of my fun personal things, <coughs> pardon me, uh, has been whenever I had come to Silicon Valley and got to meet Steve Wozniak and got to show him my Apple II computer and open it up and say, hey, here are the hardware mods that I did so that video wouldn't stutter, I could do animation. And he was like, oh, really? Because we considered doing that, but it was not price. And I was like, oh, no, 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 if you use the socket for the chip. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, being able to talk to somebody who's this idol of mine. Um, and I've actually got that computer back on the shelf over here, and he's signed the lid of the computer. I just love that. But I, and I bring that up, too, because I think enough people, especially in biotech, don't understand the power of that hello world moment and being able to do that kind of an experiment and go hands-on. And in speaking industrially and commercially in biotech, you know, biotech is one or, or biotech and medicine are two really of the last industries where you haven't had the inroads of the internet affecting what is going on and being able to see education is probably the other place where we need some you know some internet scrutiny but you don't have that same rapid development that you do with high technology computer technology computer programming because it's so hard to see the results of your labors and there are so many regulatory blocks to you know getting to the next big thing so so let me ask you there uh did you consider or are you considering yourself to be a hacker? Because I know that Steve Wozniak, for example, still, I believe, mostly considers himself to be a hacker. Proudly, completely, 100%. Uh, people, you know, sometimes use that as a pejorative term, and I just, just don't see that. I think a hacker is anybody who really likes to open the cover of something and understand it through and through. How does this work from the inside out? The, the early work I did on computers and computer science, I couldn't have done without understanding how you know, the circuits worked and how the machine language laid down on top of the digital circuitry. And from there, building up. And I feel the same way about biology. People who don't get hacking and don't understand it and don't call themselves hackers, I don't think that they are going to get as far as the folks who do. But that's exactly the moment I want to grasp here. So you, you talked about that hello world moment. You talked about opening up the cover and being a hacker in the technical sense of the, of the word uh, in terms of computing. But what was the moment? What gave you the idea that we can try and do the same thing with biology? What, that's a mm -hmm. huge change there from technology and computer science to biology. Something must have happened. Something must have pushed you there. That's a great question. You know, my, the first thought I have there is there's actually something that didn't happen. Um, and part of that is the, the accident of my circumstances where I had been working professionally for 10 years and I was back in graduate school. I didn't have the luxury of going full time into grad school. I had a car payment. I had a girlfriend who was in law school. Never do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But... I wasn't able to go and you know devote myself, and so among other things, I wasn't able to be uh, in in the traditional American system a, a graduate assistant, which is really another term for indentured servant, right? And those guys come and and do all the scut work in the labs and 
and copy the test papers and everything else. But the good thing that comes out of that is you do a certain amount of hands-on, non-abstract bits with the lab and the lab equipment. I skipped all of that because I was actually working at my first startup, and it was pretty brutal. I was doing these 60, 70-hour weeks and taking a full load at school, and so I wasn't sleeping much. I was really worried about getting up to speed on the biotech before my window ran out. I thought that there were some particular projects I wanted to work on and that by about the year 2000, they would be gone. And it turns out things take a lot longer in biotech. But I didn't have that and I always regretted it. I always looked and said, boy, the things that I really was good at, the things that I was really able to offer in the computer world and in in the electrical engineering world all came from having this early, almost childhood experience with being able to get my hands around something and change how it worked and not be constrained by the limitations of some device that somebody else had designed for me that I bought that was set down in my lap that I found at a store. I was able to go ahead and find my own solutions to things. Biology ought to be the same way. And even more so because... But why? It, why, why should it be the because, same I way? Because, I mean, there are so many hackers who do computer hacking and they, they, don't go up, they don't end up going into biology. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, most of the people I know who are actually hackers and in hackers in sort of that quasi-legal sense of hackers, uh, a huge proportion of them ended up as lawyers, which I think <laughs> is an interesting analysis there somewhere. Um, there are a tremendous number of people, though, who I think are great computerists in, in several different senses of the word who are turning their attention to biology. And part of that is, you know, it's become fairly obvious that it's the growth industry, it's the high tech of the 21st century, at least I think this first half. Um, so many things are based on it. And you've got this ready-made abstract bit, which is the base of DNA. And so if you start to look at reprogramming a computer and reprogramming a cell, you have at least a rough equivalency and you ought to be able to do so something with that. The other thing is that both of the systems are, at their heart, information-based. So if you have that key, if you understand what to do with that information, you ought to be able to reprogram. But it's been harder. Synthetic biology, in some ways, is still a promise that hasn't been realized. And it's not going to be, or it's not going to be as quickly, if people are still working at this three times removed through regulatory systems and technological systems that don't let you see the fruits of your labors fairly quickly. That's part of where I'm coming at that from. Yeah, and I've been impressed by that sort of relatively recent trend, I would say, because, I mean, Aubrey de Grey is another great example of that trade, starting in computer science, ending up in biology. If I'm not mistaken, Andrew Hessel is also another example uh, mm -hmm. who did something like that. So I'd say perhaps in the last 20 years or so, there has been a trend uh, of computer scientists ending up, or hackers ending up in biology, which is uh, fantastic. But let me move on here to your day job. And let me, uh, because I want to go through all those different elements that you have in your life, uh, but let's start with uh, the full-time day job. So what is Genomera and what do you do there? That's been an interesting new bit of my life and it's something I've been doing now for the last year, almost year and a half. Um, previous 
to that, I had been working, I'd been working the last 10 or 12 years in, in biotech and basically different levels and forms of deciphering genetic information. Um, my most recent corporate job had been for Solera and then Illumina, the company that has really, in some sense, popularized or dominated the market for DNA sequencing. And I was one of a team of you know dozens who worked on the the hardware and the informatics to make that possible. Um, what I really saw there amazed me in that we had gone from whenever I started in about 2007 to 2010, 2011, we had taken the price of DNA sequencing down by a factor of hundreds, and every year we were seeing so much data coming off of our internal research machines and then the production commercial machines you know reflected that very quickly thereafter we never kept up nobody ever even whenever we were planning to do that well nobody ever believed we would whenever we did nobody believed that we were really going to do that well and it was reflected in even things like budgets for hard disks you know whenever you look and you say hey this year we're going to do five times as much sequencing for the the same amount of money we're going to need five times as much you know storage space yeah yeah we're we're going to go gigabytes to to terabytes pretty quick and no one got that the the other thing is i saw so many people that we worked with in academic labs and in industry would run one run on these sequencers and get this tremendous amount of data and then bog down whenever they were trying to do something with it so the whole idea to me of how cheap it was to get genomic data and then really how hard it was to turn the crank on that and turn it into some kind of genomic information and whether that was information about the mechanism of a disease or some cohort of people who you know exhibited some characteristic or just you know me personally how was I going to use that information to do something in my life and what did that look like and would that discovery process scale as fast or would that forever be the bottleneck? A hundred years from now, will we have everybody sequenced and still not know what all the bits mean? Mm -hmm. And so I, and so that's, this is a long answer to your question, but I started looking at how could I take some of this information that I was getting about my own genome mm -hmm. and make some kind of sense of it. And, you know, knowing that in another five years, everybody was going to have this kind of information and have this potential to do something, and what could I do? A lot of that information has been really predicated on disease studies, you know, things that pharmaceutical companies are going to fund. Does this drug work or not? And are these people likely to get this disease or not? Sort of diagnostics. And a lot of that's based on, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of that is based on, if you look out 20 years in the future, you know, me as a 45-year-old guy, um, what's my risk of getting cancer or some neurological condition or, you know, any of the big killers. Well, what if we could go ahead and look at personally things that matter to me either in the future or today? And those would be things like, can I lose or gain weight by doing a certain exercise regimen, by doing a certain diet plan, by using a certain drug? The drugs that I do take or might take, do those work for me or not? And should I take higher or lower dosages? And so really personal, immediately actionable information and what's really coming to be known now as personal genomics. And so I got really interested in that and ended up like I have been trying to do more and more, 
saying instead of thinking about it or planning it, what's the least common denominator prototype we can do? What's the smallest experiment that we'll see if we can answer that question? And uh, ended up having several fortuitous things come together, working on that, working with a collaborator, Melanie Swan, who's a local Silicon Valley person involved in all sorts of great high-tech ventures, um, meeting Greg Biggers, the guy who had founded Gina Mera and brought me on as the chief science officer, and attending a series of meetups, and I can't say enough about this, uh, the quantified self movement and the quantified self meetups, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people who were just looking at how do you measure something about yourself and apply that information. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's a tremendous thing. It's, you know, everybody solves health problems. Sometimes they do it by gossiping with their relatives about, oh, my elbow hurts. But what if you could go ahead and base the things that you try, not on what somebody tells you or what you saw on Oprah or the next thing that you think of, but based on data that you yourself have observed and that you're applying in some kind of quantitative way. It's not just, I think this is good. It's, hey, I tried this. I know it's good. And let me show you. Yeah. So... So what's the, do you have a product or a philosophy mm. behind Genomera that's like the sort of call to action? Yeah, and I talked a lot about how we got started. Yeah, <laughs> the, the big thing, that our big uh, philosophies are that you're the best observer of your own health and that by being quantitative along with qualitative, you know, actually tracking data and things that add up, that you can do something different from just gossiping. But the gossip is a big part of it. You ought to be able to take social, quantitative data, and you ought to be able to pool your data with other people who are looking at the same thing. At the worst, you get an answer to the questions you ask about what works for you. And at the best, if enough people are doing that, you're able to show a statistical significance, some sort of a trend. You may be able to find something unexpected that works for a group of people or a, you know, a, a portion of a group of people. And to actually answer your question, which I wasn't trying to dodge, but I'm interested in different parts of this, what our product really is is a a website where people can get together, can go ahead and discuss things that they're concerned about for health, for genetics, for different things that they're trying. It might be supplements or diet. It might be some rare disease that they're dealing with as a, a family or a small group and pool their data, both talk about it, gossip about it is what I always say, but there's a social networking component, but also have good, hopefully rigorous scientific observation and have that all together. And, and we call these crowdsourced clinical trials. It's really the same thing that pharmaceutical companies, that academic scientists do whenever they look at a treatment, but we're trying to open that up so that you don't have to have a PhD to do a study. You don't have to to worry about some of the things that some of these guys do. Is you can it take fair it to say hands. that you're open sourcing the process? Oh, very, very much so. And, and very much doing, you know, stealing some uh, ideas from both computer science and computer industry, trying to patternize mm-hmm. the process. Whenever you look at five different rare disease groups that are collecting data and saying, you know, what are we going to do? I've got a five-year-old child who's literally dying of a disease. Yeah. Anything I can do to cure it, make it better, just make us feel better as we go through this process. And what can I do to pass on to the next family that has this? Well, it turns out there are a lot of things that these people are reinventing the wheel. And so putting those tools all in one place gives somebody a place to start whenever they encounter this for the first time. So let me ask you this then. 
For me personally, it's been probably over a year and a half since I did my 23andMe DNA uh, phenotype DNA test. And, uh, you know, it, I was very excited when I did it. Um, and it's been mostly good news in the sense that there was no bad news there, really. Uh, my concerns were things like prostate cancer because both my grandfathers actually had prostate cancer. Uh, and diabetes, also very prevalent in my family. My, my mother actually passed away very young from cancer. So my concerns were Sorry. mainly heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And at least from genetic point of view, I've been lucky. But, uh, and, and I mean, other than the, the curious information that I only recently discovered that I'm like 2.9% Neanderthal, uh, I cannot say that I've had actionable information or that I have taken any clear action as a result of that test, that it's changed or impacted my life in any way possible. So what do you say to people who would say, well, that was kind of pointless. You did it. You were lucky, maybe. You didn't have any major things, but so what? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, a totally valid observation. There's two or three ways that I kind of go with that. One is that's good. You know, no news is, is good news in this case. So as far as most of the things that we know now, which are, whether or not you've got some long-range or short-range uh, idea of being at higher risk for a disease, you really want to get a I'm average or even better than average, and that's nice. And are you a carrier for something? And so if you're doing family planning, that's something you know maybe a little more close to home for somebody if they're looking at having a kid. And mm -hmm. uh, you know people who are in particular ethnic groups, there are more prevalences of different diseases. Mm -hmm. uh, but no news is good news. Now, for the folks, though, who do get some of that news, a lot of times that's really, really important news. And I'm one of those people. I actually found out that I'm at a much higher risk for, for age-related macular degeneration. I had no family history of this because apparently everybody in my family has died before they've gotten old enough to get this, which is probably not good news either. Um, and this was kind of considered the, the – paradoxical news and the, the reason that maybe people shouldn't do genetic testing. Do you want to get news of high risk for a disease where there's no cure, there's nothing you can do about it? And one thing, I think that's just, and you know, let me use a scientific term, that's just total bullshit. These things are things you can do something about because it turns out there are strategies you can take, immediate strategies for lowering your risk of some of these things, whether it's cancer, heart disease, or, or anything else. Um, for the age-related macular degeneration, I started a vitamin regimen. One of the few things you can scientifically show vitamins really work for. Mm -hmm. And I switched, you know, what I do as far as getting glasses. I don't go see some guy in a mall and see the ophthalmologist there. I go see a research ophthalmologist at Stanford who, whenever I walked in his door, was like, this is great news. You're at high risk for AMD. I can work with this. And there's a couple of clinical trials I'd like to get you pre-enrolled for. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm glad one of us has happened. But it really turned out to be a good thing for me. This is good that I basically can make a contribution to this, whether I get it or not. You know, my genetic profile is letting me 
help out, letting me go ahead and help them find more about what are some of the other causes of this. If I do get it, it's not something that's totally unexpected where I spend a couple of days wondering, you know, why am I having a little bit of trouble uh, seeing down the road? Mm-hmm. I go ahead and I, this guy's on my speed dial. I pop right in there. We do something and try to prevent the progress. Yeah. And, you know, I'm keeping up with the research and contributing to the research, writing checks, as well as being, you know, at some point maybe a guinea pig. So I don't feel helpless about this at all. Um, the other thing is, and the other way to answer this is, it's still really early days. The acceleration we've seen in this technology has been all about data gathering, and the information, like I say, still hasn't appeared. And it's going to appear several different ways. Some of it would be these government-sponsored projects as we get more and more people sequenced. We have less than 1,000 people sequenced in the world where we've actually got anything like public data, and then we can look. Um, George Church, his personal genome project, is really the cutting-edge way for us to look at this if we can go ahead and have somebody and get all their genetic sequence here yeah. and then get their health record there so that we can sort of start to make those connections and we get that not for one person or a hundred people but for a million people then you're going to see an acceleration of medical science and treatment understanding of mechanisms for disease but even more than that an understanding of what works and doesn't work for individuals and you are going to care a lot about that. There are going to be things that pop up where what you might eventually die of or suffer from or be good at. This is the, the other side. There are things, there are abilities you have like right now most medical diagnosis, most lifestyle recommendations from anything resembling a physician are made to this sort of great average mass of people. Yeah. And, and we always talk about supermodels who can eat anything they want. There are people who have supermodel genes. You know, There's some guy who can go ahead and have sky-high cholesterol and keep eating chili dogs, and he's never going to suffer a heart attack. So do we really need to pester him about his cholesterol level? No. There are other people who are massively sensitive to something like that where they really need to know and keep a cap on it. And instead of having these average-based recommendations will be able to make very personal recommendations as an example you know one of the things i think everybody cares about is losing weight or sometimes gaining weight i've got a friend who just entered into a, a bodybuilding competition and he's 30 and i said dude that was a lot easier to do when you were 20 so good luck <laughs> um and but he's trying to bulk up and do things and we actually are going to look at his genetics and say here are foods you should eat and shouldn't eat and things that will and won't affect you medically as well. Um, there are 11 genes I can look at and tell you, would you be better suited if you were going to lose weight to eat a low-fat or a low-carb diet? There's one gene I can look at if you know more and more people, oh, yeah. And, and people don't realize this, and this doesn't pop up on 23andMe yet. So you can tell whether I would be appropriate for the paleo diet or not? Yeah, yeah. That, and in fact, that's what I'd really like to do is get a bunch of people with genetic information who are trying a bunch of different diets on a diet-by-diet basis. Mm-hmm. And especially if somebody's really tracking, you're going to know, are they saying they're on the paleo diet or are they really hitting it, right? Yeah. Using that information and saying, people with these gene complexes, this really works. And then using that predictively, you're a person now with this gene complex, you ought to try this first. And in fact, these people report these things help or hurt or, or whatever, but get a real personalized recommendation. 
along with maybe a supplement regimen, an exercise regimen? Absolutely. It will be very useful for me now because I have done the test and I'm actually considering the paleo diet as it is. So if I have the information of whether I will be a good candidate for it or mm -hmm. not in advance, that would definitely sway my decision one way or another. I have been wanting for like the last six months to take this information that's just in a group of research papers and, and in effect automate it so that anybody who's got 23andMe data or similar data could pop this into a, a spreadsheet at first but a, a website and say, you know, here's, here's where we think the needle is. You ought to be here, you ought to be here on your, your diet stuff. Um, and one more thing I'll mention there and I'll, sure. I'll stop talking sure. about weight stuff. A lot of people are getting this um, weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery. Yeah. It turns out there's a single gene, a single SNP and a single gene that is very predictive of the 10% or so where that surgery fails and by which I mean people get the weight loss surgery and they still gain weight or at least they don't lose weight. Wow. Yeah. And what it is is they've got a would be basically, totally amazing for them to know. Yeah, before they do it. And Absolutely. you know, are doctors who are offering this surgery going to yeah. do it? Probably not. They ought to. But it's it's basically a compulsive eating gene. It's something that is all about appetite and not being able to control appetite even in the face of these physiological sim signals. And those people then, that doesn't mean they're, it's hopeless. There are mm -hmm. appetite suppressants that they ought to try before they get cut open. Mm -hmm. so, so making these kind of things, finding more connections like this and making them available. The interesting thing is right now this information, genetic information is still fairly expensive. It still costs a little under a thousand dollars really to run a full genetic sequence and considerably under that to run a genetic scan like you get at 23andMe. It's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and the worth of it is going to go up even faster than that. It's going to go up by probably, if I were putting a, a number on it, 10x a year. There are going to be more and more good prescriptive, predictive information that matters to you now. And you know, how would you like to use that information to decide what am I good at or how can I have a good day? What are the things that help me with my sleep or my attention span or bringing you know, my best game to the job? Yeah. And I think we're going to see more of that. But uh, speaking of that sort of cost decrease, uh, which by the way beats Moore's law by a factor of several fold, um, there was a, an article just, I think, a few days ago in, in the New York Times, so I want to ask you if that's one example of that case. It was about Oxford Nanopore Tiny USB DNA Sequencer, which was going to cost considerably under $1,000, as far as I understand, mm -hmm. and was promising really revolutionary stuff. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who say, oh, that's kind of, it's not verified, you know, it's, it's unlikely, based on what we can see, it's not probably realistic. Other people said, well, it's, what, what do you think of that anyway? I'm actually, so I'm, um, to the extent, you know, that I'm a, an agnostic scientist who, you know, is very much in a show me state, I am a true believer that the cost basis for all of these things is dropping. Mm -hmm. And to be really, you know, whenever we talk about this, and this is a great form to talk because you can really say what you mean and not get soundbited to death. Yeah. Um, the marginal cost for DNA sequencing for a full human genome is now below $1,000. And and most people won't admit that, but that's definitely true. Mm -hmm. um, that marginal cost 
by next year is going to be around $200. That marginal cost by, I think, 2014 is going to be around $50. And I'm positive, in fact, I'll actually take a bet that by 2020, we're going to see a marginal cost of less than a penny a human genome. So a penny. A penny. It's, and the, the, the thing that I tell people is that you're going to be able to flush a toilet and sequence a human genome, and it's cheaper to sequence the human genome than it is to flush the toilet. Wow. Uh, also, probably every time you flush a toilet, it's going to sequence everything that's in there because that's actually <laughs> a, a nice medical marker of what your, your microbiome is intestinally. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, though, that I have learned to be very wary of as a technologist who has worked in this commercial space mm-hmm. is beware of pre-announcements of products. And uh, especially this time of year, so every February, the premier conference for genome sequencers is the AGBT conference held in Marco Island, Florida. And what had originally been a fairly obscure academic conference that just a couple hundred people cared about has become the sort of the Hollywood uh, premier party for the sequencing world. And all these companies now go and actually spend you know, huge marketing dollars to announce and pre-announce products and one-up each other so that they can improve their market margins and different pieces. <clears throat> so I are remember, you saying it's probably hyped? Well, anything that comes out of there is going to be hyped. Um, wait six months and see if these guys back this up with real data. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and just as an example and I love all these companies I think all the people who are working in them are their their minds and hearts are in the right place they're trying to make good advancements mm-hmm. um, I in particularly uh, Hagen Bailey and Oxford Nanopor Hagen and I had both been at Texas A&M together I was interested because he had this great biological take on really nanotechnology mm-hmm. and that Nanopor technology is a fantastic thing and I think it is the the next next generation sequencing bit mm-hmm. but Wait and see and look for proof and look for verifiable proof mm-hmm. instead of a, a marketing mock-up of here's your sequencer on a USB stick. I think that that is more of a isn't that a neat idea and people will talk about it. Now that said, um, we had somebody show up at the BioCurious lab a couple of weeks ago who showed me a prototype for a handheld DNA sequencer. And... You know, there were some things they would and wouldn't talk about. There were some things I was like, okay, you're, you're trying to hype me on this. But there were other things I was like, okay, those are good numbers. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good target. Whether you've actually achieved it or not, I'd like to see your lab results. Mm-hmm. All of these guys, you know, will try to do this. Um, I was going to mention, and I was going on, stop me whenever I do that, the guys at uh, Pacific Biosciences, PacBio, had three, four, five years ago made these crazy great announcements about how we're going to be able to sequence all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just hasn't lived up to its promise. They were early results. They were results where the marketing team got a hold of it and tried to make it look competitive with things that were not just already out there, but things that were going to be out there in two or three years. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to look at the trajectories of these technologies. Look at people who, who use them. And, and that would be the final thing I would say. Anybody who's got a serious tech is putting this in the hands of evaluators. There's somebody over at uh, 
National Institute of Health that is playing with any one of these things at a given time, whenever you get to talk to those people, you find out what really does work and, and, and what it's going to be, yeah, in the next year. Yeah. But speaking of not living up to the promises, some of the critics say that, you know, it's been over a decade since we've mapped the full g g genome. And yet the sort of amazing promises that we had at the, origin, at the origin of establishing that project in the 90s, a decade after we have accomplished the goal, have not come to fruition, a, a full decade. And, and so people say, okay, fine, we get all that data. But really, there's very little to nothing that we do with it. There's very little to nothing that it has translated into real-world uh, medical changes or it has impacted the lives of real-world people who suffer from all kinds of conditions. What do you say to, to that mm. kind of criticism? I actually... I can't say everything I want to say because I'm a polite southern boy, but I, I, I will say I, I don't have much patience for it and I have to call bullshit on it. Um, in 2000, you know, 2001, whenever they announced the completion of the human genome, things were overhyped and things were – people tried to simplify everything down to a Sunday supplement level. And now it's a natural thing in that hype cycle to go ahead and say, oh, so we don't have – you know, a Jetsons auto dock in every, you know, kitchen cabinet and why don't we have all these wonderful things, where's my personalized medicine report? The truth is it's out there and it's not very evenly distributed. We have hundreds of diseases now where we found the genetic basis for it. We didn't have that 10, 12 years ago. We've got a huge subset of that where we have a much greater understanding of the mechanism and we have better treatment options because of that. Sometimes we're something that we call breast cancer, we now think of in a clinical setting. If you go into a doctor today and, you know, I don't wish this on anyone, but if someone goes in with a, a relative, they will find out they don't actually have breast cancer. They've got one of five different things that we call breast cancer, you know, HER2 positive, triple negative. And if you have one of those two, you want to have the first one and not the second one because the treatment options and the chances are really different. And if you look in a research lab today, what you find is you don't have five different kinds of breast cancer. You've got 105 different kinds of breast cancer, some of which we know very well how to treat and some of which are still iffy and we're still working on it. So there's that. The other thing, and this is, you know, these are the low-hanging fruits of genomics, the two of the three. Cancer is one, and we're going to see tremendous strides. We already have been in rational treatment of that disease, of, of that several dozens of different kinds of diseases that have been mistakenly grouped together. Mm -hmm. um, drugs and how drugs work. That is something that is examined really well in this space because pharmaceutical companies generally know what the, the genetic or the genetic, the protein target is, mm -hmm. and they look at the genetics of that over a population. And because of that, people who don't have those drugs work for them personally, you can find that out. Some of that's now part of the medical procedure to test people genetically before you prescribe a drug or to help you set the, uh, the dosages. And some are to actually knock people out of getting the drug when it would be harmful or just not useful. Mm -hmm. um, one of the most interesting companies in that whole field, uh, somebody who's been beavering away at this for 10 years and has had a very singulatarian approach to this, Randy Scott, 
at Genomic Health, and he's somebody we've had now come talk a couple of times at Singularity University, and he's a, he's a hero of mine. He, he's a personal idol of mine because he, against great opposition, said we ought to be able to take this information and make it work. We ought to do something that affects people today and then did it and did the science right and did work through the healthcare system the right way and worked through the marketing the right way and just got everything right. Um, and as of about the last year and a half, that company is worth a huge amount of money and they are starting other companies with that money. But they're a 10-year-old overnight success story. And I think that it's a really good example of what medicine and diagnostics is going to look like in the, the future, in the near future. So, so yeah, I, I, that's the other thing too is just like you need to be careful listening to these claims of uh, what machines are doing, what or, you know, oh, in two years we're going to show you this data. I think whenever you listen to some scientists talk about how this doesn't really work, we, you know, yeah, we can't really show it. Sometimes they're being scientists. They're just poking at it and questioning it. If you look at how people are really using this, you will see great strides. The, the final thing, in fact, I would recommend anybody who doesn't know about this case, um, the, the case at the University of Milwaukee Medical Center where they use sequencing to save a, a four-year-old boy from an autoimmune disease that really turned out to be a, a cancer. And uh, they not only were they able to do it through really heroic, almost superhuman efforts, and it was you know the very last thing that you try before you say we just don't know what to do for this kid anymore and do palliative treatment. Mm -hmm. it, they were able to isolate the cause and correct it. And and this is you know unfortunately even more astounding. They were able to get insurance coverage for this. So you know sequencing is something that doctors are going to use if health insurance companies say, we ought to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's a big deal. And people who say that it's not and it hasn't lived up, they haven't been keeping up with the news. Mm -hmm. Well, Raymond, um, our time is advancing here. So I'd like to move on to a few other topics that I'd like to touch upon. So first of all, let me just ask you briefly to describe um, what is the point of uh, the biotechnology and bioinformatics uh, stream or part of Singularity University? To me, the, the, great, the great good that that program does is it exposes people. And, you know, right now small groups of people, but we've been able to kind of get our message out to bigger and bigger audiences to what is happening in the field today that instead of getting it filtered through CNN or Forbes or some, some report, talk to people who are actually working in the field and realize the import of what's going on with these things. And as a great example, you know, I've got the easiest job out of all the tracks at Singularity University because if you look at how exponentially DNA sequencing is advancing and what people are doing with that, you know, I can just, I can point to a track record and say, three years ago, people thought I was crazy for saying that the price of this would be here and it's lower than what I said. So that's pretty simple. And, and I think you should, can now show great utility in what's being done with that data and predict even greater utility in the near future. Um, the other part is when we start looking at things like not just reading the data, but if we know enough and then we're able to make small, I dare I say, homeopathic changes in DNA where you just twiddle a bit here and there, 
then you are able to do great good. Where to do genetic engineering, you know, somatic or again germline, and the the ethical questions there are huge. But not even necessarily in human beings, but in plants, in animals, in bacteria, so that you can make things more disease resistant or harness, you know, just as we've domesticated animals to do work since for for ten thousand years, to be able to domesticate bacteria to do the work that we need to do now, which is turn out materials in an environmentally sensitive, scalable way. And whether those materials are drugs or biofuels or the plastics that we use to, to build things. And, and what a world looks like whenever you start to see these leaps being implemented. Yeah, Singularity U does a great job exposing people to some of these what-ifs and getting them thinking along these exponential lines. Yeah, I can I can vouch for that myself from my own experience, which I enjoyed immensely. Good. Um, so, uh, but let me move to the next topic in the following way here. There is a very interesting trend of that sort of science, which used to belong only in academia, only in the lab, and is now moving into people's garages. So just like in the 70s and the 80s, people were starting up... Uh, you know, computer companies left, right, and center. Now it seems that there is this uh, sort of a do-it-yourself biology trend going on. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we should start by, first of all, um, positing for people who are unfamiliar with the term. What does it mean when we say do-it-yourself biology? It's kind of funny. It's, um, it's a portmanteau term where I think things have kind of accumulated. But what you have are this collision of a couple of cultures. You've got professional scientists, biotechnologists who've been doing their own thing in an ivory tower or in you know well-funded government or commercial labs. And they have had greater and greater success at getting greater capabilities for less money. What that has done is, one, fuel a, a larger audience who is capable of doing that work. Two, more people are really aware of this, partly because of some of the advances with DNA and DNA sequencing and, you know, the diseases that people don't die of anymore or not as much and the things that we're able to do for people. The fact that healthcare costs so much and doesn't seem to be shrinking. But to me, the most interesting part is really, and if I can mix the metaphors, the DNA that we're getting from the computer industry where you have seen over the last 30 years this, this massive application of exponential technology, something that because you know, the cost of putting two transistors in a, a space, or in a, an ever-shrinking space, is, is shrinking itself, that you're able to make more and more advances and how that has really driven things. And anytime digital technology touches another technology, it's the blob. It sucks it up. It melts technologies together, which is why, you know, I don't carry a cell phone. I carry, of course, a cell phone calendar camera with my email and a metal detector and a humidity sensor on it. And depending on what I decide to plug into it, it's about 15 other things. So you melt these things together and you get greater and greater capability. Um, being able to do that and think that way and I think that's the important thing. See how exponential trends drive something new and be thinking about, hey, this is easy enough. I can do this. If I can do a web page, 
if I can edit HTML, what happens if I can edit DNA? If I can develop a device in my garage that does some things where I can, you know, lathe furniture and make my own stuff, wow, could I go ahead and do that same thing and make a bacteria that glows in the dark and do it not just as a science project, but could I set these out in jars along my driveway so that these charge up and I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, a nightlight for my kids or whatever? How does this work? So it's been, I think, that spirit both entrepreneurially and, and you know, really a hacker spirit and applying that to more and more different kinds of technologies. And, and I think it's, it's also the attitude that you started with our conversation of, of lifting the cover, li opening up the cover and, and, and starting tinkering with it, taking mm -hmm. out parts, putting in new parts. And, and that's the radical thought that, you know, we are actually tinkering with living stuff now with our DNA, with organisms, with cells, etc. And it's, it's totally fascinating to me, but it's also a very scary thing for many people. Uh, because one of the most common criticisms is that, you know, there is a very strong regulatory uh, foundation of all academic institutions, government labs, you know, corporate uh, labs and stuff like that. Who's to say that the person in, in their garage could not basically forego or ignore all of these and, 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 and either deliberately or, you know, non-deliberately but by accident cause some kind of a outbreak that can kill millions of people, for example? Mm -hmm. and, and shouldn't we fear uh, that trend of, of moving from the lab, which is very regulated, very tightly controlled space, to sort of the open source hacking philosophy of kind of free for all sort of attitude, sharing right. stuff. And, th and those are good questions and people should be and must be asking those questions and they should be doing it, you know, not just of, am I worried about these garage hackers? They should be doing that same thing and say, am I worried about what my government is doing? Am I worried about what this corporation is doing? And am I worried about what someone halfway around the world in North Korea is doing and all of these things do concern me and I think everybody who works in this field. Mm -hmm. um, the, the thing that is both the strength and the sometimes scary weakness of that idea of the, you know, we, we, we have this mythology in our culture and especially here in Silicon Valley, the garage hacker and the, the great things that they can do and that goes so far back but you know, you can talk about the Wright brothers, you can talk about Steve Jobs and, and Steve Wozniak, you can talk about all sorts of examples in and out of Silicon Valley. The strengths and weaknesses of those kind of starts for a technology or for a, an organization are that they don't have that institutional control. And sometimes that gives them the freedom to innovate. And sometimes that gives them the freedom to do something that's scary. What's interesting is whenever you actually try it and see, and you know that was has been one of our guiding mantras. Let's try this and see what happens if we actually have a lab and people can use it. What are they going to want to do? What are our problems? What are our successes? Mm -hmm. It turns out whenever you look, this kind of much vaunted regulatory environment and how government institutions, how academic institutions work, there's really not very much there in a legal framework. 
you know, there are a few things that different places will and won't allow you to do. Like um, I talk about this, human cloning is, in a reproductive sense is illegal in California mm-hmm. because, you know, I don't know, somebody started worrying about it and thought that they were going to make a bunch of clones of Arnold Schwarzenegger and he was going to be perpetually governor maybe. But they said, let's pass a law, state law in California, we won't allow human reproductive cloning. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a law everybody has to abide by, whether they're in a government lab or a garage lab or anything else. They maybe don't have the same oversight in a garage lab, but they are still required to abide by that law. And garage hackers do, and especially people at these community labs, which has been one of my favorite recent projects. So most of the things that are regulatory or considered regulatory are actually these groups self-regulating. So every time we hear talk about biosafety levels, you know, from one to four, and four is the Andromeda strain style, mm-hmm. we can handle, you know, Ebola by wearing bunny suits and being in a concrete bunker. Most of that is not legislated. That's not legal. It's self-imposed. It's the, the National Institute of Health in the U.S. saying, this is what we think you ought to do. We brought some people together, scientists who said, Here's what we think the four levels are and each thing that should be required. Mm-hmm. And there are no legal consequences for not doing it. There are, are generally no uh, commercial consequences for not doing it. But everybody plays by those rules because it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, the worst thing that happens for most of that is if you don't do those things, you don't get government funding. Mm-hmm. So what we've done and, and several different people who are trying to do this too, trying to find what is the right way to do this, you know, you say, hey, this is, this is a, a regulatory piece where somebody is self-regulated. Let's jump on that boat. Let's do the same thing. Let's adopt those regulations for ourselves and, and make that work. And yeah, I think that that's a good idea. Most of the actual stuff, too, is fairly common sense. You know, if you spill something, clean it up. If you throw something away, don't just throw it out on a dumpster. Make sure it's sterilized. So let me ask you, is there... Uh, something that do you have like a, the worst case scenario a greatest fear something that keeps you up at night the you know I used to try to come up with what is the worst case thing kind of what is the Andromeda strain what is the I cough and you get Ebola thing um, the real worst case thing that worries me is that some bad evil institution or individual does something like that and I think that that comes from a failed state or a black government lab where there's no oversight of what's going on or somebody who's working alone in their mom's basement and they are crazy, right? Although I think they have the highest bit to overcome. Mm-hmm. And what I worry about is that happens and the pieces where individuals who are trying to innovate as small companies, as nonprofit or, or NGOs, or you know, the hackers haven't had time to learn what they need to learn to counter it. Because I, th- I think bad things will happen mm-hmm. with any technology, you know, unintended consequences, unintended uses. What happens though is you have, just like in computer terms, there are the people who write viruses and there are the people who write the, the virus vaccine software. Mm-hmm. There, there are people who, who write the guard pieces. And I think that we've got to have people who are, understand this from the bottom up, who've been exposed to hello world technology 
and have a good intuitive understanding and an ability to innovate or we won't be able to counter the inevitable bad, inevitable bad stuff that may happen. So we should find or get somebody to create a bio firewall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in a little science fictional terms, I think that that's exactly what happens and that that guards against diseases both natural and not so natural. Mm-hmm. And, and that'll be fantastic. So let me flip the coin on the other side then. What's the most inspirational thing for you uh, in the field? Mm. I would have such trouble picking just one thing. <laughs> the, the, uh, I, I, so I'm working with this space, BioCurious, and I'm one of the co-founders. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a biohacker space in Sunnyvale. Yeah. And we're really, we're still in the first year of public operation. Um, we're still getting off the ground. And the people that show up there every day, I, I mean, let me say two things. <laughs> sure. I, I remember back about 93, 94, whenever I was working on stuff in the internet, and I could keep up with whenever a new website came up, mm-hmm. I could see what that website was, and I would go and check out every website. And, yeah. you know, Yahoo was this thing, Akabono at Stanford, and it was manually edited, and they added on new sites. And at one point, it got away from me, where I couldn't check out all the new stuff. I feel like we're like at that point right now with, with biotech, and especially kind of amateur biotech. The people who walk into the lab, unless I'm there 24-7, I don't get to see all the new cool things that happen. We've got three groups that are working on uh, DNA purification and preparation. We've got uh, a couple women who came in that were trying to get a permit so they could do a distillation process, prove they weren't making moonshine so they could work on biofuels in the space. Um, we've got at least three cancer cures that I know, one of which has been fully commercialized that came out of garage labs. Mm-hmm. And there's something new every day. There's a high school student I met who was who had gone beyond the capabilities of what we can support at BioCurious because she's working with uh, human cell cultures for basically what's a, a cancer detection assay. Mm-hmm. And, and she's 16, you know. Wow. And, and she, so I was staying up all night with my Apple II computer. She's staying up all night trying to figure out how she's going to do gene expression on a shoestring budget. Wow. It's amazing. And, the, and that's the second thing I wanted to say is the thing that I thought we were starting when we started BioCurious was a place where a bunch of people could put gadgets and I could play with them and they could play with them and that's what we were doing. And, you know, not play, play and work, but, but hack. And what has really happened with that organization and with that space is it's a place where people can find each other and talk about what they're doing and, and do better, you know, better best practices in a clinical mm-hmm. or laboratory sense or, or entrepreneurial sense, but yeah. really just, you know, here's my idea. What do you think? Oh, hey, that's great. But did you think about this? Or did you know these guys are doing this piece? And it, the human creative element and the human capital that's coming out of this blows me away every day. I just, I'm so privileged to be part of it. And I would go on and on for much more than the hour that we've got. So, so, so stop me. Yeah, we're stopping because we have to move <laughs> on to, to other questions and we are already surpassing the hour that we've, we've had. But uh, let me just vouch for what you just said in the sense that I myself uh, found that the biggest, most uh, valuable asset that Singularity University has is the human capital.
-hmm. both in terms of faculty and in terms of people who attend there. That totally blew me away. Like those people there are unbelievable. Um, but I want to move a little bit more to the ethical uh, dimensions of, of your work uh, by asking you to discuss a little bit uh, your views on intellectual property rights. And more specifically, so, so in general, if you wouldn't mind saying a couple of words, and, and then perhaps you can focus specifically on patenting living organisms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is such an interesting place, and it's a great example of something where technology has raced ahead of mm -hmm. regulatory efforts, which I want to point out, that's not a failure of regulatory efforts. That's a success of technology. If regulatory efforts could match the pace of technology, we've got something wrong with our regulatory efforts. They should never be that quick. Um, and, you know, as a, a quasi-libertarian or, or a, say, a recovering libertarian, I really believe that in some instances, the job of government is to stay out of the way and not do as too much damage. And in other instances, it's to make sure that everybody is wearing their mittens and bad things aren't happening. Mm -hmm. So a great example to me of what's going on, and, and people who are at all familiar with IP and biotech know about the uh, ACLU versus Myriad case, but the the you know, brief synopsis there is you had a couple of researchers at a Utah university find genetic markers that showed people were highly disposed to develop breast and ovarian cancer. They uh, patented that. That got licensed by uh, a group that went ahead because the technology at the time to do genetic testing cost thousands of dollars per test. Mm -hmm. They said, hey, we'll go ahead and make this a thousand or two dollars per test to license this information because you know money was spent on it people had to make this discovery a lot of testing was done to do it people invested in that they deserve a return what has happened is the technology has really outpaced that now to do that test is a fraction of a penny mm -hmm. but the licensing fee is still $2. around yeah or or uh, at one point, it was still $2,000. Oh, 2000 Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah, talk about kind of having the old model. And they have not been, you know, it's, it's an important test. They've been charging all the market would bear. They haven't been freely licensing that to everybody, to all comers, and they've maintained their price point. That's rough. So um, the ACLU, which in a real great reversal, they had been saying, hey, we we think genetic testing maybe is not good and should be private and nobody should do it. Mm -hmm. They said, we actually think genetic testing is marvelously valuable and everybody should have free or, or no strings attached, you know, a much lower barrier to the access to this. These guys shouldn't be charging this. And so they went after the, the company doing this licensing. It's uh, been amazing seeing that case move through the American legal system and actually seeing, you know, what's basically a, a great challenge to the patent law in that area, the, the uh, White House has filed basically an amicus curie brief saying, yeah, we think you ought to tear this one down. We probably don't need this kind of patent law. And now here it is in front of the Supreme Court and nobody really knows which way it's going to jump. Mm -hmm. the, the thing I personally do is I come down on, you know, I, I will show great intellectual courage in coming down on both sides of the fence. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that 
you should wipe out the whole patent system for these things, but I don't think we should necessarily have the patent system we have now, and people shouldn't be able to charge this much. It's, it's a barrier to innovation. It's a barrier to good health care. But at the same time, if you wipe it out, it's a barrier to innovation and a barrier to good health care because people won't have an economic incentive to find these things and do something. Well, I get it on the innovation level, but when it hits the level of a living organism, so it's one thing to patent uh, genes or treatments or something like that. It's another thing to patent a living organism. And and for me, and, and especially because, you know, first step is like single genes, then or single cells, then, you know, multicellular organisms. Then we're going to eventually get to intelligent, perhaps intelligent living organisms. And that's the bottom line for me. And that's something that is not right, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Ethically that's... speaking, from where I'm standing, uh, life uh, should not be patentable. That makes sense. I can see the philosophical sense there. And I hate the idea of, about a, th- a, of a thinking being basically having to pay some kind of maintenance or license fees, right? Because it was created. Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, at... At best, that's some form of chattel slavery. Exactly. Uh, I think, well, for one thing, I think we're still a little ways away from that, although, you know, never as far away as you think. That, that used to be what people said about nanotechnology. They used to say, hey, I'm optimistic. I think nanotechnology is going to be here in 20 years. When I'm pessimistic, I think it'll be 10. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I actually think from a legal and commercial point, the patenting of living organisms is very defensible. Because if you are using technology to develop something that is new under the sun, that is not just we found this organism and so we were the first ones to find it and we want to claim it and you know harness all the mm-hmm. bits and pieces and rights to it, that's one thing. Creating something new I think ought to be protected so that people do create new things. Creating something new that's a thinking being, I actually think that that follows under even existing anti-slavery doctrines. I hope so. I'm yeah, not sure. yeah, and and you know, I think the way chimeric genetic technology is working, I don't think we're going to have to have an understanding of what constitutes a conscious artificial intelligence or machine intelligence. Uh, I think we're going to end up fairly quickly if we allow it to happen, if we ethically take that step. Mm-hmm. Chimeric organisms that are human and something else, and you know what class of protection should they enjoy? And there are some people who would say they shouldn't exist at all. Other people who would say they should, but in the service of money or research or something else. And other people who are like, hey, this is our chance to create our, our cousins and not be alone in the universe. So. And there's a whole other... A whole other line of, uh, of of attack on that, by the way, which is the religious side of things, mm-hmm. right? So, so let me ask you. Uh, first of all, do you have any religious associations? Only historical ones, in the sense that, and, the, and I'm glad you asked this question. This is an interesting question, and I think too many people shy away from this. Um, I grew up in a Texas town as a Southern Baptist, and actually, very early, like before I was a teenager, decided I couldn't intellectually reconcile the questions that I had 
with the doctrines that I was understanding and hearing, Mm -hmm. but went through a a period where I I looked around and tried different Protestant uh, religions, um, including an Episcopal church kind of switch, which was Mm -hmm. really something, you know, your family does maybe more as um, uh, a cultural piece than a religious piece. Uh, I'm a confirmed Catholic or, you know, was historically, Mm -hmm. but but now I have to describe myself as an agnostic. As a, as a scientist, you know, I say there are a lot of these questions that are, given my current tools, unsettleable, but they're important questions. And I can't describe myself as an atheist, I, although my, my pragmatic day-to-day activity is kind of an atheistic worldview. Intellectually, I cannot subscribe to that as a worldview. Um, something else to kind of take off on that. This has been really important to me as a, as a human being and as a father because my very favorite genetic experiment are my now five-year-old twin boys. And coming from a tradition where there's religious community you know, involved in family, yeah. what do you do whenever you don't believe in God but you want to share some sort of you know, Western culture with your kids, I don't want my kids to grow up and never know. Read Plato. That's my advice. Yeah. Socrates, the Socratic dialogues, the best. I mean, Arthur Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer said that Christianity is Platonism for the masses. Mm. Mm-hmm. A lot of the ideas from the ancient Greeks, especially from Plato and, and so on, even some of Aristotle filtered down into Christianity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's my answer as a philosopher. <laughs> I, I actually I love that answer, and I'll just mention fairly briefly that we're trying to, in some ways, recreate sort of a cultural history by we're going back to ancient Greek myths and taking those as great stories and trying to inculcate our children with those, and then we're going on to you know and Christians hate to have their belief system referred to as a mythology, but that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Going through the Christian mythos and again telling the great stories, but where they've again, they won't necessarily take it as rote and scripture, mm-hmm. um, but as great stories. And actually the thing that I've found that I really enjoy and that makes sense and has resonated with my family is we're taking, I think, what are the modern mythic story elements and I'm raising my children in the church of the superhero. We are going through and, you know, kind of like a Protestant Catholic, we're DC, not Marvel. But we read a lot about <laughs> Superman and Batman and we tell stories about what it means to be a superhero and, and try to do the best that you can. And that's been really interesting. Whenever I tell this to my traditionally religious friends, they recoil in horror. But I think there's a lot to be gained there. And, and you know, check with me in a few years. We'll see how that works out. Absolutely, I would I would do so, but I'm afraid that today we're running very close to our last three or four minutes. So I would like to quickly ask you the last couple of questions. So the the easy one is always, where can people who are interested in what you do and who you are and want to follow you uh, find more information about you? I'm not too hard to find, and in fact, I love anybody who wants to contact me. I'm uh, Raymond at RaymondMacaulay.net. Email is a great way to get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Look for my day job at Um, 
but biocurious.org is the best website and, and place to find things on citizen biology. Mm-hmm. And the things that are going on at singularityu.org, I think that's a, another good resource. Um, I'm still a little bit of a curmudgeon. I do at Raymond McCauley for Twitter, but whenever I post, it's very infrequent. I try to make it a high signal, although low frequency post. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. I, I'm one of your followers there, by the way. Thank you. Uh, no problem. Um, and the last question is perhaps the most important um, of the whole interview, and that is, do you have a single message, the most important point that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? Sure. For a while, I've been telling people to be their own scientist, and I think that's important. And I think anybody who asks a question and looks for an answer is 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 doing real scientific work but the thing that i've really taken as an epiphany the last several years and i has permeated my my personal and intellectual and and work life is is try it and see you know prototype first and don't think about something don't churn around plans for 2 years find the simplest thing that you can try and prove to yourself that it works show somebody, whether it's an organization, whether it's an intellectual idea, whether it's some physical manifestation of an idea, do that. And and that comes from really this this group of, of people that I've been working with, people like you at Singularity University. That's been so far and away the thing that keeps me coming back. That's a lot of hard work, but because I get to meet the students every year and, and see what you guys are working on and see how you do it. And it's really collapsing things to where you get your hands on it, do that, and you will never, ever be sorry. Raymond McCulley, thank you very much for taking time and being with us on Singularity One-on-One today. It has been nothing but a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah.